Can you hear me now? Oh, good, good. How y'all doing? Good, good. Hey, um, I'm going to ask our ushers if they can come forward. And um, tithes and offering is something that we value because we think that what we are doing, what we are a part of, and by we I mean you and us, is, is of eternal value and has kingdom impact. And so thank you for your faithfulness in, in giving, as you regularly do. A uh, couple announcements. If you picked up a bulletin, I think it's on the, I don't have one with me, but I think it's on the back. There's a, a note, I think, at the bottom. Reminder, reminder, circle this, highlight it. Uh, next week, this will be an empty room, okay? Uh, this is our last Wednesday night community for the semester. And so uh, we'll, all of our uh, children's programming, middle school programming, um, uh, Elementary adult services are going to take a break for the summer. And so we will resume um, September 7th, I think, is our, is our start date. It's that first weekend in September. And uh, we, we take a break from a, a number of things. We're such a college town, we just can't get off that, uh, that kick. So um, we're, we're, we're in a series, and this is week five, in a series looking at some really kind of odd, different confrontations that that people had with Jesus where either they were confronting him or or he was kind of moving toward leaning on them. And one thing that I notice, um, and this is, I mean, think about any relationship you have in your own life. If, If you have a relationship with a close friend or a family member, as you, as you get in, in close proximity to them, um, Things are revealed about about you, right? Things come out. I've, I've been married for almost 18 years now, and a lot of my sin has been exposed, both sin that I knew was there and a lot of sin I didn't even know was there, right? So there's some kind of exposure to it. Um, good things come out, too. It's kind of my, my true identity is revealed when I'm in a relationship. Well, that's nowhere more true than when you are in close proximity to Jesus because Jesus is a fully truthful person. He, he reflects humanity perfectly. So in, in close proximity to Jesus, I see both he's the perfect human. I see what, what, what I was intended for, what, what my humanity should look like. But I also see where I fall short. So it's, it's sort of uh, exposure or awareness of who I am, but also growth. Um, good things come out. Beautiful things are, are made inside me. And so hopefully that we've had that experience as we've been looking through this teaching series, looking at some of these interactions. And, and hopefully that as we walk into our summer, our proximity to Jesus isn't limited to an hour and 15 minutes on Wednesday night or an hour on Sunday morning or whatever it might be. But we're living in proximity to Jesus and we're, we're confronting him when we're bothered by things. And he is engaging and leaning in toward us. And that's how I become self-aware. That's how I become aware of God. That's, that's how I grow. So if, if you have your Bibles, um, the last confrontation story we're going to look at tonight is in Matthew's Gospel. So you could turn it on on a smartphone or uh, iPad or something like that or open your Bibles. Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start reading at verse 23. Verse 23 we read, uh, that same day, this is coming in the middle of the story. I'll give a little bit of context in a minute here. That same day... The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. 
Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, and then and then they tell this story. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, they ask, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Which, which one of the seven? Since all of them were married to her. And Jesus replied, you're stupid. <laughs> well, not, not exactly. I mean, but you kind of get that. He's, his response, he says, you're, you know, the NIV that I'm reading translates it, you're an heir, which is accurate. But, but you get the idea. This is, this is what he's saying to them. You are in error, he says, for two reasons. Number one, you don't know the scriptures. And number two, you also don't understand or know the power of God. And then he, he explains, he says, uh, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? And then he quotes, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, unquote. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished. Common response we get oftentimes. They were astonished at his teachings. Now, these are the last we're in the last seven days of, of Jesus's earthly ministry. He's, he's, he is in, he's coming to Jerusalem. You know, on Palm Sunday, we think of that. He's in the capital city. He's, he's come to the center of power where the big power players are. And he, remember, he goes into the temple and he, he condemns the acts of the temple and, and the people saying, basically, you, you were intended by God to be a light to the nations and you failed at that mission statement. And so God is bringing final judgment. And he, he's walking around like he owns the place. I mean, that's how he's behaving. And all these conversations and stories he's telling, and uh, it's, it's just it's bringing all of the power brokers together and you know bugging him it's ticking him off and so matthew records three parables that jesus tells all kind of explaining the dynamics and then gives gives three examples of these confrontations um the first confrontation was the should we give taxes to caesar thing tonight's confrontation is the second one and um it's it's kind of a theological battle about the resurrection Okay. Now, before we go on, what's what's motivating Jesus to fulfill his mission? What what is it that is Jesus's motivation for saying I have to go to the cross? Remember, he keeps saying I have to do this. I have to. So the scriptures are fulfilled. I have to have. And all the way since he's been you know journeying with his disciples to Jerusalem, he's been telling them more clearly than ever, I'm going to die. This is going to lead to my death. What is the motivation? For this, um, I would suggest, among other things, this is maybe at the center of what Jesus's motivation was, and that is that he had a clear vision of what his intended future was for the universe. He had a crystal clear vision for what the future was for you, for me, for the whole entire universe. Um, 
And he believed that through what he was doing, what he was going to do in just a couple days, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that he would bring about that intended future. Um, he saw the act of the cross and the re- really the resurrection and the cross together. He saw it as a hinge of all history, that history was finally turning the door, that he was going to enter a new age a new world was going to be brought about. Totally new direction of history. Now, one way he spoke about this was this word that we come in contact here in this, in this text, the, the word resurrection. Um, now, this is, this is a uniquely Jewish concept. It's, it's a uniquely Old Testament concept of resurrection. Um, you look to some of the ancient cultures of the world. If, if you were to go to the Greek cultures, uh, though there were many different philosophies... The goal was ultimately disembodiment. Uh, Plato was the one who said the, the body is the prison of the soul. The reason why you know, Plato didn't mind drinking the hemlock and dying, he was quite peaceful because he thought, I'm finally out of this sucker. I'm, I'm, I'm done. And, and so the ideal is this sort of contemplating deep philosophical and mathematical and logical thoughts off on a cloud somewhere, but it's disembodiment. Or if you go to the East, it's not resurrection. The goal ultimately, now it's, it's going to be a reincarnation, but the goal was ultimately to get released from birth and rebirth, to, to be extinguished. Moksha is one of the words they use, to be extinguished from individual existence. So this is a radically unique idea, and it's, it's unique to the Hebrew people. It's unique to their scriptures. And so resurrection is the idea that the God of Israel, not just the God, but the the creator of the whole universe, would not let human sin, would not let spiritual evil, would not let suffering have the final word. There's, There's hope for the world to be set right, hope for the world to be made new. And this is a really powerful idea, isn't it? Um... Another way Jesus spoke about uh, this hope for the future is if you turn just a couple pages to the left, if you go back to chapter 19, and this, this is one of my favorite phrases in all of the Bible. It's, it's actually a word, but sometimes we can't translate it as a phrase. This is, this is one of my favorite words because it's, so, well, it's so deep and thick, but, but, but it's, it's all-inclusive. Um, chapter 19, verse 28. In fact, let me, let me just put it up. Here on the screen, Jesus uses a word. You're going you're to get your money's worth, okay? Because I'm going to give you a word in, a, in, uh, in another language here. It's just, it's just kind of fun. So, um, but uh, Jesus says this. Matthew records him saying, says, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you. He's talking to his disciples. They're asking questions about what things will be like in this new creation he's talking about and all this sort of thing. Um, he says, the renewal of all things. He said, at that time, at, it's one word he uses, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, sits on his glorious throne. When God is reigning, when Jesus has brought everything under control and set all things right, he said, there will be this renewal of all things. This this word, right? That's that's a lot of... That's a lot of letters, huh, in a word. <laughs> this word in Greek that, that Matthew was recording Jesus using, it's two words. It's a compound word like, you know, butterfly, um, which is neither butter nor flying, but we put those two words together. This, this is a compound word with two words that we actually have kind of taken into our language. Um, 
polygenesis. Okay? Poly, we use the word poly for meaning again or another, right? Um, genesis, we get our word genesis from it. Okay? This, this word, polygenesis, just means uh, again birth, again creation. To, to, to make all things new is a good translation of it. It's, it's taking all the broken things and making them like pristine, sparkling, beautiful. We talk about restoring an old car. <laughs> That's the idea that all things are restored. And so we live in God's good world, but something has gone desperately wrong with it it is deeply broken and it needs to be polygenesis it needs to be have a rebirth it needs to be made new again and see jesus is driven remember i said what's his motivation this he's driven by a vision of this being a reality he he when he talks about it you know he said this isn't like idle speculation for him um, this this is something that is a huge deal. And he believes that what he's doing in Jerusalem in a couple days will be the hinge to this. It'll be the absolute hinge to this happening. And see, Matthew's kind of the reason why I think Matthew's telling the story, I think. Uh, you go back to chapter 4, Matthew tells a story about Jesus' mission, about how he's going to bring the kingdom, the way in which he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to do it by submitting and suffering and dying and all that. He, Matthew tells a story of him going out into the wilderness. Remember, Satan comes, and he's tempted in his identity. You sure? There's another way to do this. There's, a, there's an easier way to do it. Matthew's telling this story is another way. He's being questioned about, are you, uh, about that motivation. I don't think it can happen. I don't think that vision of a preferred future is a reality. There's no way, there's no way it can happen. That's kind of how he's, how he's being questioned here. He's, he's being pushed against. So, see, this is not idle speculation. This is not like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It, you, know, it, you know, these goofy theological... This is not a goofy, airy theological question they're asking. This is very practical and very concrete. And it, it's, it, it determines... Everything. It determines absolutely everything. And we'll see that here, I think, as, as we go. And Jesus believes that he's bringing into reality what was lost in the garden. Remember? God's presence. God's blessing. That, that all things being right. Um, if, if, I wish we had more time to talk about it. In this, in this last uh, teaching series we did called Woven, we Go back and listen to the week if, if kind of you want to dig into this more. We talked about this idea of heaven and earth, these two spheres, and that we in, in creation, heaven and earth spheres overlap. And at you know, page three, the rebellion is this great divorce of the spheres of uh, God's space and our space. And so Jesus sees himself as bringing these spheres back together, this polygenesis, making all things New. Okay, with that in mind, let's, let's go back to the text here. Um, who are the characters in the text? Who are the people who are confronting Jesus? And so what are they called? Sadducees. Okay, we've come, if, you, if you've read Matthew, they've popped up a few times in the story. Um, who were they? Uh, I, I heard someone use this illustration. It, 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 it kind of gets at it as you think about kind of what, what they were like. I don't mean theology-wise, but kind of like the Church of Scientology here is in America. Again, not, not, not theology, what they believe, but it's a very small number of people, right? 
But many, most of the people who are in it are extremely wealthy, extremely well-known, prominence. They're, they're significant people of influence. That's kind of what the Sadducees were like. There's, it's not a large group. It's a, it's a very small sect. But they're the wealthy. They're the influential. There, there are a few other ancient uh, texts besides the New Testament which uh, speaks of these Sadducees. And we don't know a whole lot about them. Um, but we know a couple things. Well, you know, I'll just give you an example of how, how kind of wealthy they were. The chief priest, you remember his name? The chief priest Caiaphas at, at this time, he's, he's part of this group. So it's the very, very, it's usually the elite and the powerful. Now, okay, what do they believe? Because this, this isn't kind of important to grasp the story here. Number one, their, their Bible, you know, was, was only the first five books. They accepted the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, period. So all the rest of, of the writings, the Jewish writings, the, the prophets and the Psalms, and they, they thought it was just bogus. So they only accepted the first five. Um, they did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They're, as far as we know, the only tiniest sliver of the Jewish group. One, that was one thing that all the Jews held to. Of course there's going to be resurrection. They're this tiny little sliver that reject the concept of resurrection. And, but because they reject the whole concept of polygenesis, it's not, everything's not going to be made new. There's no final judgment. You die, you know, it's kind of a dead poet society, uh, your, your worm food sort of thing. That's the end. So, you know, God occasionally engages in the world and does some things, but pretty much, you know, obey the Ten Commandments and, and uh, you know, it'll be over in a, in a few years here. Um, now, think about this. How convenient that it's the people at the top who have that kind of a view, right? If you have a view... That the world doesn't need to be set right. It, it's not going to be set right. How hard are you going to work at setting it right? <laughs> not very hard, right? These are the people at the top. These are the people with power. You know, when Jesus comes and talks about injustice that's going on or how certain groups are treated, this is part of that picture. This is part of that idea here. Now, they quote from the law when they're kind of trying to push over Jesus' concept of polygonesis, everything being made new. And um, they, they quote from, if, if you have your Bibles, is there a footnote in there? They're, they're quoting from a particular place. They're quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, that, that fifth book of the Torah. And they're, they're trying to make Jesus' concept of the resurrection and renewal just look absurd, just look stupid. And, of course, what Jesus does is he kind of turns, turns the tables. Now, what they reference, um, it's, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 25, is, is where this particular law falls in the Torah or the story of God's people. Deuteronomy 25, here's basically the, the law and, and how it functioned. Um, ancient Israelite are a tribal people, family, and they're farmers, land. Those two things mean almost everything. Your land and your kinship, your family name, and that sort of thing. And everyone could own land. Man, woman, mom, dad, grandma, the patriarch, the matriarch, everyone, everyone could own land. But see, when a husband died, typically the widow was at great, great risk of losing the land. Uh, if there were no children, then she, there was no family support structure or anything like that. So basically, when a husband died, this family support network, network would kick in. 
It's called Leveret Marriage. And basically, to ensure that the, the, the widow, and if she had children, wouldn't be left to fend for themselves, go into extreme debt, lose all their land, and that sort of thing, um, the widow would get remarried back into the family where there was support structure. Because, you know, there's no social security. There's no state in this sense. And so the Sadducees say, now, now Jesus, you like the Bible, don't you? You like the Torah, right? Remember that? You know, you're, you, you love Torah. Um, you really think God's going to create this kind of soap opera, kind of new creation world? You're always talking about, you know, polygonacy. Really, that's what it's going to be like? And so, and so they give this absurd story about these seven brothers and this, and this one woman. And, and they're doing, basically in philosophy, what you call reductio ad absurdum. You're reducing someone's claim to where it just finally looks so absurd that you go, okay, okay. <laughs> all right, I guess, I guess uh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea at all. So they're trying to reduce it to just look absolutely crazy and absurd. And Jesus' response to them says, you're stupid. Right? You're ignorant. You don't understand. You're in error. And he says for two reasons. Um, he says, you don't know. You don't know what the scriptures are all about. You don't even know the story of God. You don't get God's story. And number two, he says, you lack imagination in God's power. You lack the ability to understand and think about and have an imagination about what God is going to be able to do. Look in um, verse 31. He says, but about the resurrection of the dead, um, have you not read what God said to you? And then he quotes, right? If you have a footnote in your Bible, do you see where he quotes from? Um. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, unquote. Where's he quoting from? He's quoting from the book of Exodus. And Jesus, everything Jesus does is very intentional. You know, he's not just kind of, you know, grabbing some weird verse. Um, but oftentimes people say, how in the world does this prove his point? Like, this is kind of a weird quote. I mean, why didn't he go to like Daniel? Daniel actually talks about the resurrection. Why didn't you go to Isaiah? Isaiah has this vision, this idea of resurrection. Why didn't you go there? Well, remember, who is he talking to? Sadducees. What do they not accept? Daniel, <laughs> Isaiah. What do they accept? The Torah, the first five books. So he, he's, very, he's, he's smart. He, he goes to where they have common ground, something that, they're already gonna that they will already accept as authoritative. But he quotes this passage from Exodus 3. Um, and this is the story where, remember where Moses encounters uh, God through this phenomenological burning bush? And it's not it's burning, but it's not burning up. It's not being consumed, and it's very odd. And God actually engages with him by, by using this phenomenological thing in his experience. And... Um, now, this, this is a crucial moment back there in the history of God's people, in, in God's big story. So, remember, Pharaoh has taken all of the Israelites, and he's killing, he's killing their, their boys. That's kind of stopping the offspring. So one whole generation's gone. He's throwing them into the river. And the rest of them, he's crushing them, uh, killing them through forced slavery. And... Um, God appears to Moses and says, no more, no more. This, this is going to stop. And, and he, he tells Moses, I'm going to send you with a message to the leader of this one who, who was doing this. And Moses argues, no, it's not a good idea. I'm not, I'm not the one anyway. And he, you know, God kind of says, you don't really have a choice. 
Um, and Moses asks, so you know, finally he kind of, okay, well, so who should I say is sending me? Like, because, you know, I'm going to say, you know, God says, or this, this God says, release people. Like, which God? Who are you? What do I, what do I say? And, of course, what he's told, God answers, and this is the quote that Jesus picks up on. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jake, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, would you get from that interpretation, Jesus knows his Torah well, would you get from Exodus that, like, there's resurrection because he said, I'm the God of Abraham? No. I mean, it's kind of weird. You know, you might kind of go, well, maybe he means, like, present tense. Like, I am the God, not I was the God. Maybe. But that still seems, I don't know, maybe a little, a little weak. And, and it seems to have made an impact because people kind of, they got it, right? They, they, they seem to understand. So what is going on here? Now, I, I think the reason why we don't really get it is because we, we think in like tiny little bits. Jesus thinks, his hearers think in the grand story of what God is doing and has been doing. Think about the story the Sadducees accept. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How does it start? The book they accept starts with God giving humanity uh, immense responsibility, immense authority. And, of course, what, what does humanity do with it? Well, we, we define good and evil on our own terms. We manipulate the world. That was a gift just for ways that we can... Um, um, kind of work it to our own self-advantage and exploitation of others. We ruin God's good world. So what is the response of the God of the Bible? What does he do to these people who take up arms against him, these rebels? Well, Genesis 12, this is where God goes to Abraham. This is the story. This is the big story. This is a key turning point. Genesis 12, he chooses one man. Abraham, and he makes these eternal promises to him. That's, that's the first guy that was mentioned. I'm the God of Abraham, right? What's the promise that he makes to them? That through, he says, through you and your seeds, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth, I'm going to do something in history to defeat evil. I'm going to restore the divine blessing that was lost in the garden. So God defines himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for him to do that is to say, I'm the God who's going to restore everything. What does that sound like? <laughs> Polygonesis. That's the kind of, that's who he is. The God who covenanted himself with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who's all about bringing his blessing back to the world. He's got all about restoring what was broken. He's God who's all about stopping injustice. And at one of the greatest moments of injustice when the people are being grinded into the ground through slavery and their children killed, God says, uh-uh, well, who are you? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's, that's what I do. That's what I have promised. So what Jesus is saying is, if you believe this story, you have to believe in resurrection. You don't have a choice. (laughs) Or you're being radically inconsistent. You're stupid. (laughs) You have to. That's what the story is all about. If you believe in the story, you believe that death will not have the final word. That's the story. God is on a mission to defeat evil and death. So he says the first reason you're dumb, you're ignorant, you're stupid is because you don't understand the story. You don't even get the story. But he says there's a second reason that, that, that you're so off base. The second reason, uh, verse 29, 
Jesus replied, you're in error. Well, the first one here, because you don't know the scriptures. But secondly, because you don't know, you, you, you don't understand, you can't conceptualize, you can't imagine what God can do. The power of God. See, here's what they had done. In philosophy, there's something called using a straw man argument. Have you heard that before? It's, it's, it's where you set up an idea of somebody's like a straw man, meaning it's weak, it's easy to push over. And so you set up a straw man, and then you go, you kick it, and you go, see, that's dumb. Basically, what he's saying is, you set up a straw man argument for this polygenesis, this making all things new, this idea of what God is going to do, and then you knock it over. He goes, that's stupid. Come on, you know, sheesh, guys, come on. Use, use your imagination. Think about the power of God. Think about what God is doing here. Verse 30, at the resurrection, he says, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. That's weird. What does that mean? Um, here's what it doesn't mean. He doesn't say you will be an angel. Like there's, there are people out there who believe that. You know, that, oh yeah, oh, we're going to, no, no, no wings for you. Like, you're, you're not going to become an angel. And yet, um, there's, there's a categorical, you know, ontological distinction between an angel and a human, different creatures. So he doesn't say we're going to be angels. He says um, that we're going to be like angels in this respect. Does that make sense? We're going to be like angels in the respect that he says here. And what is that? Well, we will not be the institution of marriage won't exist. We won't be in that institution. We won't enter into that institution. So now let's understand what he means through his own metaphor of, of birth, this birth again or rebirth. He talks a lot about that because to enter the new creation. Remember what he says to this one guy who is a Pharisee who does believe in it. He says, Nicodemus, if you want to enter the new creation, you must be. What does he say? Born again. Right. You you have to go through this experience in order to be in this new creation. Take a look at take a look at this picture here. This this probably isn't new to many of you. Right. Uh, this is basically the developmental stages of a human person from uh, embryonic form until, you know, full term little baby being born. Um, now, think, think about how weird our world is. You know, like we go to movies and we see movies and, you know, science fiction. Like, that's weird. No, our world is way weirder than, than anything else like that. You existed, you existed once in this form right here. Isn't that weird? Like you, you used to look like that. That's what you used to look like. Um, you existed in that form. Now, let me ask you a question. When you existed in that form or one of these forms, was that you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't anyone else, right? Uh, we know that because you, you're here now, right? That was you. Now, let me ask another question. Is that the same you that is sitting in your chair right now? Well, yes and no, right? Um, many of those cells, you know, you've kind of switched them out. If you've got you know, dandruff and you've kind of lost a lot of those cells and that, that sort of thing. But, but it's the same person, right? It's you. That was you. It's, it's a new and different you, 
but it's still it's still you. Like think about this. If if you could sit down, let's say the okay, the 30 38 week year old, okay? If if you could sit down with a 38 week old you and try to explain uh, pizza and, you know, traveling to Rome and, you know, uh, Netflix and, you know, like, like, would that work? No, there's, there's no, there's no framework. There's no categories to even explain how that might, might be. Now, there will be some things from this existence as 38 weeks or before that will carry on after after birth right um look at look at the picture of the one that says you probably can't see this as small this is four weeks old it starts three weeks four five six seven all the way up to 38 look at look at this picture right here between four and five and everyone do this take a big deep breath what did you just do you just used your lungs you just inhaled and exhaled right um Experts tell us that it's between four and five weeks when the little cellular structures or whatever begin to take shape into the whatever it is, bronchial tube or something that eventually, a lot of you know more about that than I do, eventually develops into the lungs themselves. Um, and, and they're finally completed around like 32, so somewhere in between those last two stages, of about 32 to 34 weeks is when they're fully functioning. So think about this. You used to use an organ that your life depended on. I, I'm sorry, you, you do currently use an organ that your life depended on that you had from super, super early on. What, what were your lungs doing during that time? Were they inhaling and exhaling? Yes. What were they inhaling and exhaling? Yeah, like liquid, right? You were breathing in and out liquid, filling your lungs. Um, that's weird. You used to live in liquid for like months and months. Now, if you tried to breathe and live in liquid right now, it's, it's going to kill you. Okay, You can't do that. Anymore, something happened so dramatic at the moment of your birth. Such it, it was such a, a radical transformation that it's still you, but it's a radically different you. See, the very first time you took a breath, right, and what you squeezed out all of this liquid from your lungs, and what did you do? Yeah, you cried, right? You screamed. But do they still spank babies? They used in the in the cartoons. They'd always spank a baby, right? I thought that was going to happen. That didn't happen with my kids. But it, yeah, it's you didn't like it. Why? Because it was weird. You've never used your lungs in that way. It felt so awkward. But you finally you screamed and you finally used an organ for what it was intended for, and you would have had no idea how that would have worked. Um, something radical happened when, how did you get oxygen when you were in the womb and nutrition? Yeah, you had this weird fleshy tube that was attached to you and you got all of your oxygen and nutrition and all these other things from this, this weird fleshy tube and, and you lived off this thing for months. Now think about this. And then this radical thing happened, and in just a couple minutes, 
that thing that absolutely sustained your life, I just cut it off. <laughs> it was totally unnecessary. Not just unnecessary. It, it, it would hamper, you know, you'd, you'd be sticking just a couple feet to your mom here for the rest of your life. and um, it, it would hamper how you would live life even, right? But you never could have imagined not having it. What kind of existence could you have without that? See, you and I, in our histories, all went through a radical transformation. Is it, is it still you, though? Yeah, but it's a new and different you. Why do you think Jesus used the metaphor, this metaphor, to talk about the future of the universe? You ever thought about that? Man, you could like spin your mind on that for a while, couldn't you? Why did, why did Jesus choose this to talk about the, the totally new polygenesis, all things being made new? And why do you think Jesus used this metaphor to explain what needs to happen to you to enter that new universe? See, in new creation, there will be some things that will be unimaginable, okay? you know, like the you know, pizza on Netflix. I mean, you could never wrap your mind around it. There will be some things that will continue, you know, kind of like, like our lungs, but they will undergo such a radical transformation you can't even conceive. Or as one great person wrote, no ear has heard, no eye has seen what God has in store. That's actually from the Bible, in case you didn't know. So, so there, there's continuity from this stage to that stage, but there's also discontinuity. And that's why Jesus uses that. There, there are things, and think about this, there are things being woven inside you right now, in your heart, in your soul, in your character, in your mind, in your temperament. There are things being woven inside you, the things that Jesus says that he says that he wants to shape you into the image of Christ. Remember, there's a lot of talk about that in the New Testament. He's, he's weaving things inside you that you have no concept of their value. You have no concept of their purpose. But all of a sudden, birth will take place in the, just like lungs. Wow. What will it mean to be polygenesis, to be a part of that, to be in this new creation and all things being made new? Now, Jesus seems to think marriage is one of those things, like the cord, right? Why? Well, what, what did Jesus believe about marriage? We know, right? Uh, just a couple chapters back, chapter 19, he talked all about it. He said, you know, he, Jesus believed that um, that sex and marriage and uh, procreation were all kind of wrapped up into one thing, this idea of covenant he talked about. But his ideas were informed by pages 1 and 2 of, of the Bible, of Genesis. And so he believed that there were these two gendered opposites, male and female, and that they resist the biological impulse to go procreate with just anyone they want. And they come together and covenant themselves together. And they, they make this covenant. When the two come together, they, they, they bind themselves. They become one. And, and they consummate this marriage through this, this uh, activity. And these two fluids mix. And this shouldn't be new to any, too many of us. And, and all of a sudden there's new life. There's a new human being that arises out of this. 
And Jesus says that images God. Not is God, that images, <laughs> it, it reflects, it, it images out somehow God. Um, these two coming together in a covenant that, and then out of this new love generates life, he says that's somehow a reflection of, of God. Well, what do, we know, what do we know about Jesus' view of God? Um, we know Jesus views God as, as a being whose character is eternal, self-giving, creative love. So when, when human beings come together in this covenant, we're looking at this embodied symbol of that creative love of God. Now, does Jesus think that marriage is the only way that humans image God? No. Obviously not, right? Um, remember what Jesus never was. Married, right? And so to say that only marriage images God, you know, would say, oh, Jesus didn't image God. Well, Jesus did perfect, perfectly. And more than any other religious teacher in all of history, Jesus elevated singleness, celibacy, um, as, as honorable, even desirable position for human beings some human beings why is that because contrary to modern western culture jesus did not think that marriage and sex was the meaning of life he just did not think it was the meaning of life for jesus's mind it was a temporary stage in the universe's history it's a temporary stage in human history new creation it's banished death it's gone. And so the institution of marriage and procreation is not needed in the same way. Marriage is a social institution. And, and it serves this purpose. Paul talks about this. He says it, it's a picture of, of God, of our union with Christ. Why does Jesus talk about when he speaks of us? He says, you're my bride. Why? Because marriage points to that. It's supposed to be a reflection of it. Um, C.S. Lewis had this great line one time when, I, I think it's in Mere Christianity, when he's talking about the idea of there won't, this on this you know, topic, there won't be marriage in heaven, there won't be sexual activity in heaven. And he says people initially kind of recoil like, oh my goodness, that just doesn't sound too heavenly, you know. Because that's, I mean, this seems, you know, people talk about it like it's, it's, it's the most wonderful human pleasure you can have. And so to not have it just seems like I can't wrap my mind around it. And he says, well, imagine talking to a child, little, little child, and you're trying to explain to them the pleasure of, of sexual intercourse. And you say, it's the most pleasurable thing you'll ever experience. And he says, oh, so there's chocolate involved. No, not exactly. Okay. It's this idea that, again, I don't have a framework. I don't have a framework for a new creation just being as big and beautiful and robust as, as it is, as Jesus talks about it, because I'm, I'm, I'm using my fetal framework, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm like an embryo form. But, but God says, I have something so much bigger, so much larger. Jesus' vision of the universe is that God is at the center. God's love is at the center. You can read that the very last chapter of the whole book when he talks about envisions the city meaning this this new creation he says what's at the center god god is at the very center and god is this 
God of love, that, that God's love is at the center. How do we know that Jesus thought that? Because the very next story, if you keep reading on, Jesus is asked about the purpose of life. What's the purpose of life, Jesus? You know what he said? Love. It's to, it's to experience and understand God's love. And in response, love God. And out of that love, other human beings, other creatures, human creatures that God has put in my life. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say that married love is not going to be in heaven. He says that the institution of love, or new creation, I should say. Um, Jesus' vision of the universe has God at the very center. Think about this as, as we're kind of coming up to the end of our, of our night, and we want to respond in a way as we always do with taking some symbols which really speak about God's love for us. But think about getting your mind to the person that you love most in life. Okay? Might be family member, might be friend, but get them in your mind. There's something about loving another person that brings out the best in you, right? Acts of, of, of courage or self-sacrifice or, or, or giving. Beautiful, beautiful things come out of that. There, there are moments that uh, you act in a way, but you and I both know that we have significant uh, handicaps to our love, don't we? Um, our love, it's, it's partial, right? I can like love someone one minute and then kind of snub them the next you know, sort of thing. Um, my love is conditional. I tend to love people who are more like Brent. If, if, if they're more like me, it's easier. I tend to love those kinds of people or, or who just kind of respond in certain ways to me. Um, we, we live in a universe where there are millions, probably billions of people who don't feel welcome or at home in the universe. They've never felt welcome here because they've never experienced this really any sort of a significant sense of love from any, anybody really in their whole life. But imagine a world, imagine Jesus' polygonesis world. Imagine a world, this is Jesus' future, what he's envisioning. This is his motivation for going to the cross. That all of those handicaps to your love are removed. Man, what would that be like? Can you imagine what exactly that would be like? Where everyone feels at home. Everyone feels welcome. See, I, I have limits to my love. Like, like when I got married and I've got four kids and it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. Right. And I and I got neighbors and I got coworkers and I got friends. It's like I'm maxed out on who I can love. Like, I, you know, I'm not I'm not accepting applications for like a brand new friend right now. Like I am maxed out on 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 my love. I'm I'm just maxed. And many of us feel like we're at that place at times. But imagine imagine all those limitations are totally removed. And and those parts of me that exist now, I don't full they're not fully formed in me. Man, they just explode in new creation. And then loving one person doesn't mean everyone else goes unloved in any way. See, that's what the rebirth, that's it making everything new. That's it being born again. That's what it's all about. For Jesus, this is enormous. It's not speculation. It's not light. But here's the thing. We're called to 
by anticipating it, we're called to participate. Now, remember Jesus says, up, may up there come down here. Your kingdom be here. He's inviting us, not just, oh, that'll be nice in the future. He's saying you can participate in that kingdom right now. It's the now and not yet thing that Bible scholars always talk about. See, marriage will come and go. Many things that seem absolutely vital to us will will go. Their time will be over. And many parts of us that exist now will be fully awakened by Jesus' healing redemptive work in our world. These three things remain. What are they? Faith, hope, love. Which one's the greatest? Love. That's what will remain. That's what will be at the center of new creation. That's what we're called into right now. Here's what I want us to do over over the next couple minutes. I don't know how you need to respond. I, I think I know some ways that I need to respond. Um, some of us need to just hear from God that we are welcomed in this universe. Some of us need to hear that we, are, that we have a God who deeply, deeply loves us. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who has pinned himself to the task of bringing polygenesis. And that includes you. And he, and, and he wants you. He wants you to feel welcomed. He wants you to feel loved. And so maybe in this these next few minutes as you take the bread, as you take the cup, these are symbols of his love, symbols of self-sacrifice, of, of him pinning himself to, to the job of making all things new. Maybe you need to, to hear that. For some of you, that's, that, that's not a struggle. Maybe, maybe the way you need to respond, like, like me, is um, you, you're just, you're apathetic. You're lazy about your love. There are all these people not just in the world, they're in your family. Uh, they're at your work. They're, they're people you're sitting next to, maybe. And they, they desperately need to, to, to experience love. And we're just stingy. We're just stingy with it. I don't, I don't give that kind of redemptive, creative, polygenesis kind of love that, that I'm seeking their good, as Jesus talked about, or seeking, seeking their blessing in us. And see, that's, that's a failure to follow Jesus, isn't it? When I do that, I fail to follow Jesus all the time. Um, and like Jesus said to the Sadducees, I think he says to us, it's a failure of your imagination of God's power. You have no idea what God can do as you move in that direction, as you move toward love with them. So I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward and to pass out the elements. Hold them and do something while you're holding them. Think about how God wants you to respond right now to this. Um, to, and this is Jesus. This is, these are Jesus' words. This is us coming in close proximity to Jesus. Ask him how he wants you to respond. Respond that way. And then once uh, the elements have gone around, I, I want us to just take this act uh, together. <laughs>